The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, June 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Welcome to week two of our Summer Psalms series. We love alliteration around here, but we may have gone too far with this one. Um, it's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Shelby. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors around here. And the reason that some of you have never seen me before um, is that I'm primarily over at our 400 building. Uh, but I'm excited to be with you today. Um, excited to see just so many new faces that I've never seen before. Um, and I'm excited to open up this, this passage with you. Uh, specifically the Psalms. Uh, this is a, a book that's near and dear to me, as I'm sure it's near and dear to some of you as, as well. Um, as Robert mentioned last week, uh, the Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers used by God's people for the past 3,000 plus years. You know, they're written by, by many different authors and categorized within many different categories. They're the hymn book of God's people. They're the prayer book of God's people. And if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard something similar to that stated um, about this book of the Bible. So let me offer you another way of understanding this book. The Psalms help form our language. It gives us language to talk to God. In her book, The Wisdom of God, Nancy Guthrie says it this way, how does the created speak to the creator? How does a sinner cry out for mercy before a holy God? How does a sufferer lay out a complaint against a just God? How does a needy human lay out his or her needs before the shepherd? The Psalms show us how. It's a little bit like parents teaching a baby how to speak. You know, the Bible uses the metaphor of, of being born again to, to describe what happens at the moment of our salvation. And like a newborn baby has to learn how to speak, we need to learn how to speak in this new life. Think about yourself. Think about your kids. How did you learn how to speak? Parents, how did you teach your kids how to speak? You didn't just say, just say whatever's in your heart. No, you said words to them and you asked them to say those words back to you. You said ball and they go, Bleh. you say dad, dad, and who knows what comes out then. Um, you ultimately learn to speak by being spoken to. This is how the book of Psalms works in the life of a believer. And, and even the structure of the Psalms gives us clues um, uh, about this. Uh, the, the, the book of Psalms is organized into five books, and it's structured this way, you know, to parallel the first five books of the Old Testament, often called the Torah uh, or the Pentateuch. And, and up until this point of the Bible, within these first five books, the, the dominant voice has been that of God speaking to his people. His instructions, his wisdom, his commands. And now in the Psalms, it is the human voice we hear responding to God. So these Psalms are our response to God. Eugene Peterson says it this way in his book, Answering God, the Psalms shape our language for this new life with, with God. But the Psalms actually do more than just, than just shape our language. They actually help us find words when we don't know what to say. How many of you have been in a conversation with a friend or family member and they ask you, how are you? Good. No, 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 really. How are things really going on in your life? Fine. If, if you're like me sometimes, my brain is just scrolling through the Rolodex of English words, and I'm thinking, I, I, I don't know what else to say. I'm good. I'm fine. Now think about your prayer life. How, how often do your conversations with God feel the same way? You just don't know what to say. So, so the Psalms help us in this regard, that they give us words. They, they prime the pump. 
They not only teach us the language for addressing God, but they actually give us language for articulating what's inside, what's, what's in our hearts. Um, things that maybe we didn't even realize were there. And today we're looking at Psalm 2. Now last summer, Robert kicked off uh, our summer psalms by looking at Psalm 1. So this year, it seemed fitting to look at Psalm 2 as both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are, are, a, are like a double door into this book. Um, like I said earlier, most scholars believe that these were originally one psalm and would have been read and sung together. Psalm 2 actually ends where Psalm 1 begins with a pronounced blessing. Psalm 1 describes the blessed way of an individual that's been transplanted, that has new life from life-giving, life-giving waters, from heeding God's word. Psalm 2 then, then zooms out and focuses on the world and what's going on in this world with its relationship with the anointed one, the Lord's Son. Similar to Psalm 1, the, the all of Psalm 2 are living a transplanted life, a people who have found refuge by submitting to the Lord's King who reigns in Zion. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man who delights in the Lord, while Psalm 2 describes the royal king who reigns over the world. Ultimately, these are one and the same person. Now, while most psalms tell us who the author was, usually as a header of some sort in your, in your Bibles, um, Psalm 2 doesn't. That doesn't mean we don't know who wrote it. You see, Psalm 2 is actually one of the most quoted or alluded to psalms in the entire New Testament. And over in Acts 4, the apostles, the early church, they actually um, attribute these words to David. It actually makes my life a whole lot easier whenever the Bible interprets the Bible um, for you. And we will actually come back to Psalms, uh, uh, come back to um, uh, Acts 4 in a little bit. But Psalm 2 is categorized as a royal psalm. Meaning that its, it's um, immediate context has to do with the human king and kings of Israel. And was likely composed to be read or sung at, at David's coronation. And the coronation then of all the kings in the um, Davidic line to follow after him. But, but, but royal psalms also frequent, frequently remind the hearer that God is king. And they point beyond the immediate context to, to a time when God himself will install his king. So in many ways, royal psalms in our psalm today, it, it anticipates the first coming of Christ as well as look forward, looks forward to his second coming. And Psalm 2 can specifically uh, be divided up into four sections or four acts. Like I said, this would have been a psalm that would have been part of a very formal coronation or um, uh, inauguration type, type um, a ceremony. So it makes sense that this is actually um, 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 a dramatic in some sense. It has a, um, a dramatic flair to it. It's divided up into four sections or four acts, each with three verses and each with a very distinct voice. You have Act 1. A king rejected. And the speaker you hear here is the, the Lord's enemies talking. Act two. A king, a king um, uh, appointed. And here we get to hear from the Lord himself. Act three, a king commissioned. We're going to hear the Lord's anointed one speaking. And then finally, our final act, a king received where we will hear the Lord's ambassador speaking, i.e. the psalmist. And so it, it, it almost does feel like a play in that sense in four acts. So, so let's jump in. Uh, Psalm 2 actually opens uh, with a pretty provocative question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Back over in, in Psalm 1, the, the blessed man meditates on God's law. That's what we read there. And the same word that is translated meditates in Psalm 1 
is the same word that's translated plot here. So think about this. The same mental energy that was being given to understanding and obeying God's word there is now being used by those who hate God for a completely different goal. They're not trying to figure out how to obey, but rather how to overthrow God's um, authority. And, and it's easy for us in our 21st century meta-narrative mindset to read this and think, who are these cavemen? Who are these Neanderthals? Who are these people? What are these people thinking? Who would think this way about God? You see, we immediately like to identify ourselves with good guys in stories, not with bad guys. And the uncomfortable reality that is being spoken here at the top of, of Psalm 2 is that we are not neutral observers in this um, uh, insurgency taking place. We're not some reluctant combatant. We are the nations. We are the peoples. We are rebels, not in the fun Star Wars sense either. We are a depraved and corrupt people. We all conspire to overthrow the authority of God in our lives. We want to be free of anything that restrains us, even God. And when it comes down to it, we don't really want to live the way God has prescribed for us. We all think we can do it better. We don't want authority. We want autonomy. That's the American way. We want to be free to choose God's way whenever it suits us. We don't, how, why would we ever want to obligate ourselves to strict obedience? Bottom line, we don't want to be ruled. This is the, the definition, the essence of, of sin, rejecting the authority of God. And until the, the gospel actually takes root in our lives, we will always see his rule as somehow holding us back. We will always see God's way as a burden. This is why we need God to open our eyes, to give us eyes to see that it's our sin that actually enslaves us. And only in him can we find true freedom. And, and, and this question here at the top, how, however provocative, was not being asked for the purpose of um, uh, eliciting an answer from God. This is, this is um, a rhetorical. It's designed to, to motivate the hearer to, to remember the nature of this world and to do so in, in response to what God's word had already revealed about that world a world that hates God. Our natural fallen state is one of constant rebellion against God, against his rule. And yet notice those two little words at the end of verse one. All of our hatred, all of our plotting and scheming, all of our internal and external insurrection and rejection of God is what? In vain. God cannot be overthrown or destroyed. We will never get away from God. We will never escape him. But notice that this rebellion is not just against God. It's against his anointed. Who is this? The Hebrew word used here is Mashiach. I actually got um, a corrected in the previous service. Mashiach, I'm saying it right now. Which in Greek translates to Christ. And in English, Messiah. This is the word used in the Old Testament for priests and kings who had oil poured on them in order to set them apart for, for a special function. This was, this was largely symbolic of the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the king to empower him for his duties as, as the king. So this Messiah, this anointed one, 
It was um, originally David in this psalm and his descendants who were set apart by God to serve as kings over his people. So, so to understand this psalm, we've got to realize that, yes, on one level, it applies to King David. The schemes of, of these rulers against the Lord and his anointed are rooted in a time in, in, during David's reign when, when some of the nations surrounding Israel sought to um, uh, rebel. David, the Lord's anointed king over his people, then writes this song to show the folly of rebellion against God's anointed king. So on one level, these three verses refer to those rebel kings and their attempts to, to shake off David's rule over them. But it's obvious and will become more obvious as we go on that this psalm goes far beyond David's experience. It's ultimately fulfilled only in God's anointed, God's son, who is also David's son, Jesus. So David wrote this psalm not only about himself, but in a deeper and much more complete way about Jesus. And just like these kings rebelled against King David, we're going to be shown here soon that all men have rebelled against King Jesus. Meanwhile, where's God in these first three verses? This is, this is probably the most relevant question for you and I. Because it's a question that not only would, would the people during that time have asked, it's a question you and I ask almost, almost daily. This is a question that can be ripped right out of our 24-hour news cycle world between wars and shootings and political unrest and um, uh, upheaval, it's easy for us to walk outside these doors and say, who's actually in charge around here? And, and one of the things I love about this psalm is that now having heard the voices of God's enemies running around the earth, having heard the cries of his people going, God, where are you? We now get to hear from God himself. The voice of God seated in heaven, some translations say enthroned in heaven. And the psalmist wants us to grasp the absurdity of the rebellion against the authority of God. Let's go to verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He who sits in heaven laughs. God's not threatened by this insurrection. He's not up there wringing his hands, wiping his brow. He's not wondering how he's gonna get everything back under control. Notice his posture here. He's sitting. He's not pacing back and forth, peering over the balcony of heaven, going, what's going on down there? Here we are throwing a tantrum about wanting to do things our way, wanting to be the kings of our own lives. You're not the boss of me. Meanwhile, God sits high above our petty desire for so-called freedom and laughs at our ridiculousness. And again, what I love about this verse is that it invites us to look beyond what we can see with our physical eyes. It's an invitation to get a, a different perspective on the world. To see a world that isn't being ruled by a specific ruler or president or monarch or a world where I'm seated on the throne. It's actually an invitation to remind ourselves that God sits enthroned over both this world and the world outside these gymnasium doors. This invites us to see with spiritual eyes, to see God enthroned in heaven. No matter what calamity is going on in your life, no matter what calamity is going on outside those doors, God is in control. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Why? 
as it tells us in the next verse, because he's already installed a king, and it's not them. It's not us. And I don't want to brush past this verse, because I think these are phrases that, honestly, some of us are uncomfortable with. Wrath, terror, fury. I thought God was love. How can he be angry? Yes, God is love. No, God is not fundamentally angry. Whenever Moses prays for a glimpse of God in Exodus and he sees God passing before him, Moses doesn't hear a voice that says, the Lord is the Lord so angry with you. No, what does he hear? The Lord, the Lord is what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness showcasing his compassion and his patience to a rebellious people. Yes, God is compassionate and patient. And because God is compassionate and patient, he gets angry. We don't like to imagine a love that ever gets angry, but every parent in the room knows what I'm talking about when I say that. You love your child And because you love your child, you get angry when someone hurts them. You get angry when they willfully do things that are going to destroy them when they don't even realize it. So love and anger are not opposites. They're not this weird yin and yang. It's actually, love is actually the source of a healthy kind of anger. Um, There's a psychologist, his name is Paul Ekman. He's actually one of the leading psychologists on, the, on, on um, emotions. The man is brilliant. And I can say that because he was the consultant behind the movie Inside Out. So yes, the guy is a frickin' genius. Ekman studied emotions for 40 years and he says this of anger. You feel anger when something you care about is being obstructed or damaged. And so when it says in this song that God speaks to them in his wrath, this is God saying, I know what is truly good for the world. And that's my rule. That's my reign. My rule is the ultimate good for the world that I made and that I love. This is God saying, I get angry when I see you squander your allegiance to things that cannot actually provide for you. I get mad when I see you give your allegiance to things that cannot fulfill you. And so what does God say? He says, follow my king. Give your allegiance to the only wise and true and loving king. Only then can you be truly blessed or truly happy. The Lord of heaven and earth has put his king the one he chose, the one he installed and empowered in the place of authority for our joy, for our blessedness. Yes, God has put David on the throne in Zion, David and Solomon and all of the other subsequent kings in their line. But the reality is they were only the opening act for the king God intended to put on the throne one day. David and Solomon were God's lowercase m messiahs. They were the Lord's anointed for their day. They kept the seat warm for when the, the old, until the real Messiah came. They were royal sons of God in the role of king, but they were only small s sons, preparing the way and pointing towards the capital S son who would come. How do we know this? Well, the New Testament opens with an Ancestry.com presentation of Jesus' family tree, showing that Jesus was a direct heir to King David's throne. Jesus himself repeatedly made clear that he was the Messiah, 
the descendant of David, that all the messiahs and sons of David who had sat on David's throne were pointing toward. Whenever he said, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus had authority that could only have come from God. He worked miracles proving that he had authority over demons, over Nature, authority over sickness, authority to forgive sins, authority even over death. Even when the man opened his mouth to teach, he had authority. And the early church understood that Psalm 2 was speaking directly about Jesus. Again, makes my job up here today a whole lot easier whenever the Bible interprets things for you. So let's go over to Acts 4. Uh, Go with me over to Acts chapter 4. starting at verse 24. Here we have Peter and John and a host of other, host of other um, uh, believers. And they're praying. And they're praying after Peter and John have just shared about their grilling and subsequent release by the Sanhedrin. And so this is their prayer. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, when was the last time you prayed and addressed God as Sovereign Lord? Right here from the beginning, they make it clear who their master is, who their king is, whose reign they are under. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then what do they start to quote? Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. End quote. That's that's the first two verses of Psalm 2. And they don't stop there. They're like, let's, let's go ahead and let's name some names. Let's go ahead and say who these kings of the earth and rulers are. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's bold. Whenever we name drop in a sermon, we get nasty emails for a week. (laughs) The early Christians were just like, let's just say it. It was Herod. It was Pilate. It was the Gentiles. It was all of Israel. We all plotted together. It was all of us. So so whenever we we read Psalm 2, we have to realize that, that when the enemies of the anointed ones speak, they're actually foreshadowing the enemies who will ultimately put Christ on the cross. And in Christ, in God's sovereignty over over history, David, his kingship, and even his enemies were always meant to point forward to Jesus and his kingship and his enemies. Now there is a, um, a device used in the New Testament to quote an excerpt from the old, knowing that people could fill in the rest. So if you grew up memorizing and praying and singing Psalm 2, when these believers started quoting it, why did the nations rage and conspire against the Lord and against his anointed? What are you going to fill in, in your mind? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Yes, everybody did conspire against Jesus Herod and Pilate and Israel and the Gentiles, all of us, we were all part of conspiring against the Lord and against his his anointed. But that was Friday. And on Sunday, the one who is enthroned in heaven laughed and said, okay, you guys done? You finished? Is he good and dead? Jesus be raised up. This is how they would have read and understood Psalm 2. We know how the nations conspired, and we also know how God laughed. So the preaching in the New Testament is very clear that God became king over the world through Jesus. Now, I just felt a disturbance in the force just there as all your heresy radars went off at the same time. 
Um, um, but let me explain. Um, uh, N.T. Wright uses this phrase in his book, funny enough, entitled, How God Became King. And yes, it's a little bit of a cheeky use of that, of that phrase because obviously God was already king. But what he's trying to say here is in, in the Old Testament, they were saying, Lord, come and be king yourself. Come do for us what none of, the, of our earthly kings could actually do. Our earthly offices, they just can't seem to get it right. Would you just come do the job yourself? And in the New Testament, they're saying, Jesus, you have done what none of our earthly kings could. The king that God has installed here in Psalm 2 is Jesus. And any other king that we try and live under will result in God saying, I'm going to speak with some anger right now. Because that king is ultimately going to destroy you. That king of, that king of ultimate happiness, of sexual fulfillment, of um, uh, materialism, all those kings will actually ruin your life. There's only one king who gives life. And now we get to hear from this anointed one. It's his turn to speak to us in this psalm. Um, uh, originally, this would have been David, but now we ultimately know that this is Jesus speaking. Speaking about what God has ordained for him and for history, which actually gives us a glimpse into, into God's mind and his plans for the world. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. On his coronation day, as David was installed as God's representative to reign over his people, David entered into a new and unique relationship with God. One of royal sonship. And likewise, when Jesus began his ministry, though he had been eternally the son of God in the presence of God, he entered into a new relationship with God the Father. Again, that of royal sonship. And no less than the audible voice from heaven affirmed that Jesus was the greater David, the true son Psalm 2 points to. When Jesus was baptized, think about this, and later whenever he was transfigured, a voice from heaven would say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to this guy. And clearly this is what the apostles understood as Paul later preached in Antioch in um, Acts 13. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, ding, 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 ding. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Paul makes clear that the son of Psalm 2 is Jesus. The son in Psalm 2 says that God told him only to ask and he would give him the nations for his inheritance. And in the Gospel of John, we get to overhear Jesus doing just that. In his prayer prior to his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We as believers are the inheritance Jesus asked for. Psalm 2, 7 through 8 has been fulfilled. The nations were given to Jesus. They are under his authority as rightful king. And what does he then turn around and do? He says to all of his followers in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Christ's authority and right to rule the world has now been extended to every continent, every nation, every nationality. This is the language of kingship. This is the language of authority. And now we can move into our final act here. 
We get to hear the psalmist finally speak, the poet who has become an ambassador for the king. And we get to hear him issue an appeal to anyone who will listen, an appeal in light of everything else we just read prior to that. He actually shows us how to live under God's reign through Jesus. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the, in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be wise, be warned. And what this is saying is if you find yourself with any amount of authority or influence or power, you best be listening up. This word here for wise is, is the Hebrew word um, a sakal. And it has the same root as the word for prosper or success. So what this is saying is, hey, you kings, hey, you people with power, if you really want to prosper and succeed, you need this sakal. To really prosper, to really succeed, is to be living with God's wisdom. Take every other marker of success off. Here's the question you're left with. Are you receiving instruction and correction from the wisdom of God? Are you receiving instruction and correction from the word of God? Because that's what it means to live successfully. That's what it means to serve the Lord with fear and joy. And the appeal here goes out to everyone. Be wise, Trump. Be wise, Putin. Be wise, Northam. Be wise, generals. Be wise, teachers. Be wise, graphic designers. Be wise, financial advisors. Be wise, everyone with any influence or authority. Spend your days serving the Lord. Don't spend your days serving yourself. Let the mind of Christ be in you. He took the form of a servant, and so must you. And then he says here in verse 12, kiss the son, or as some translations say, pay homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, now kiss the son, this may be a, a practice or a phrase that's, that's foreign to many of us, we don't really think of a kiss that symbolizes um, allegiance in our democracy, but, <clears throat> but there is still one vestige of this practice. One little place in our society where a kiss speaks of um, allegiance. Anybody? The wedding. The wedding ceremony. When having exchanged vows, the minister says, you may now kiss your bride. You know, whatever else that kiss means in that moment, that kiss is a way of saying your old allegiances, your old freedoms to chase whomever you were chasing ends today. And with that kiss, whether or not it's, it's your first, you're saying, is, you're saying your allegiance is now all directed to this person. And here we have the Lord saying, I have installed my son as the king. Point all your allegiance to him. And then he tells us why we should do this. Because by doing so, his wrath is kindled. And this is interesting because as we were reminded earlier, normally the Lord's anger is described as slow. However, notice that this is not the anger of the father. This is the anger of the son. And not in his first coming, but really as described in his second coming. It's as if the psalmist can envision that scene at the end of time that John describes in Revelation. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The kings of the earth are looking for a place to hide, and they can't seem to find one. They didn't listen to the warning of the psalmist here. Because if they had, they would have known where to hide themselves to avoid the wrath of the Lamb. By actually taking refuge in the Lamb. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How does this make sense? How are we saved from the Lamb by taking refuge in the Lamb? If you've paid attention to the news the, the past few years, you've you usually hear something, usually as we get to the end of summer, um, about wildfires that pop up out in California. Fires that burn and devastate large portions of forest and land and homes, killing hundreds of people in the process. And when you see footage of the destruction, sometimes you'll just see some random home still standing in the midst of just burnt carnage. And what these homeowners and these firefighters have done is, as the fires approach homes or they approach populated areas, that they will start fires themselves um, around the area. Burning the land ahead of the oncoming inferno, taking its fuel away, causing it to either dissipate as it gets closer or just to go around the area. They take refuge on ground that has already been burned. That is where they find safety from a raging fire. And if you hear nothing else I, I say today, hear this. The only place to find safety, to find refuge from God's burning anger towards sin is in the place that has already been burned by his wrath. Jesus was enveloped in the fury of the wrath of God towards sin so that you and I will never have to endure those flames. The only refuge from the wrath of the lamb in the last day will be in the lamb. This is the true and eternal blessedness spoken of in this psalm. The Lord's anointed one, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will rule and reign on his throne for all eternity. Jesus is on the throne. And this is the repeated theme in the Psalms. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He reigns over your family squabbles. He reigns over your children's struggle. He reigns over your health crisis and whatever financial predicament you happen to be in currently. He reigns over the longing you have for what has never happened in your life. He also reigns over the frustration you feel over the unwanted things that have happened in your life. God is still king and he still reigns over this world he's made. And if you are a Christian here today, he still reigns in your life. And here's what that means for you. Serve him in your job. Give your best at your job for the Lord. Don't be satisfied merely with punching the time clock. Work for the honor of Jesus, not for your own glory or advancement or promotion. Serve him in your singleness. Serve him in your marriage. Be faithful in thought, in word, and in deed. Serve him in the way you raise your children to love God. Kids, serve him in the way you treat your parents. Honor your father and mother. The Lord reigns, so serve him in your homes by what you read and you watch on TV. By what gets typed into your internet browser. Serve him with your bank account and your spending habits. He reigns. Serve him by actually reading his word and conversing with him through prayer. God's king has come to us. 
to inaugurate his kingdom on this earth, and he is coming again to establish it forever on a renewed earth. The day is coming when, as John wrote in Revelation, loud voices in heaven will say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we will join in the singing, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. On that day, there won't be any insurrection. There won't be any, any um, uh, rebellion. There won't be any resistance to the authority of our king, only welcome joy. And so the question before us today is, are you willing to submit to his authority to let his word and his wisdom hold sway in your life? Or are you literally hell-bent on having your own way? Maybe you find yourself muttering against God because you find his rules confining and burdensome. Then you haven't truly seen the king. See him today in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Respond to his invitation today to find refuge in him. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. And yes, kiss the son this kiss is far more magnificent and far more significant than a wedding kiss. It goes beyond till death do us part. It goes beyond the bounds of death. This kiss is the glad joining of our lives in covenant with our king and glad submission to his loving rule. This is the kiss that seals us to Christ so we never need to fear being burned by the fires of his wrath. Bow your knees to King Jesus. Own him as your own Lord. End your rebellion. Let your life be one of worshipful submission. Kiss the Son. And as Christians, we actually get to live this reality out every time we come to the table. Communion for the early Christians was called a sacrament, and whatever else that word might mean, it comes from a patch of um, a allegiance that a Roman soldier would have on his uniform called a sacramentum. Sacramentum was a Roman soldier's reminder that his allegiance was to Caesar and that he'd taken an oath of allegiance and fidelity to Caesar. And so the early Christians said, well, that's fine, but our allegiance is to Jesus. So every time they came to the table, they saw it as an oath of allegiance, a way of saying, Jesus, you are the king. You rule and reign. You are our good king. And Jesus is still our good king today. Paul tells us in Romans that we were treating God like his enemy. We were insistent on being enemies of God, enemies of the king. And yet while we were his enemies, the king died for us. Christ died for us. Enemies that should have been crushed by the king instead found a king who would lay down his life for rebels like us. Have you joyfully pledged your allegiance to Jesus today? Have you run to him for refuge? Have you trusted in Christ as Lord and king or are you living like you're in charge and you really don't need Jesus at all? Maybe you've been um, uh, ignoring the Lord's wisdom and instruction, leaning instead on your own wisdom. Maybe you haven't been serving the Lord. You've been serving yourself, your own wants and desires and treating Jesus like some sort of mascot on the sidelines. You can entrust yourself to him today. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He doesn't want to beat you down. He wants to lift you up. He has no intentions of taking advantage of you, but wants to give you the full advantages of belonging to him, of belonging to the king. He has done all the work necessary to bring you into his kingdom, his home. So look to King Jesus for refuge today. Repent and believe in him. And now we have the opportunity to say, 
I'll gladly give you my allegiance. As you come forward today for communion, you're coming today to the king, to the king's table, the king's feast, the king who gives us his own body and blood. So right now we're gonna take a moment to reflect and prepare our hearts as we come to this table and respond joyfully to the invitation of the king to find refuge in him alone. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to to simply sing about the wonders of your love when inside we, we, we chafe against your rule, we chafe against your commandments, your word. We're such a fearful people. Fearful about the present, fearful about the future. Father, forgive us. Forgive our unbelief. Forgive us for not trusting in you. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and allowing ourselves to become intimidated and fearful due to the state of our world. Today, remind our hearts, remind our minds, remind our lips of the blessedness of what it means to take refuge in you. Give us a clear picture of your son, Jesus, King Jesus, who rules in truth and grace as the Lord of the nations, worthy of the praises of all peoples. Thank you that he bore our sin and that through his perfect obedience, he brings blessing to all who trust in him. And Holy Spirit, give us renewed hearts today that delight to serve and worship you. Help us declare the reign of Christ everywhere we go, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, to the ends of the earth. Reign sovereignly in our hearts today, sovereign Lord. And may all who hear today bow their knees to King Jesus, giving him the glory that he deserves. Humble us now, Father. Let's take a moment to reflect. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.